The Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training, ADST, is an independent, non-profit organization located in Arlington, Virginia. Over the past 30 years, ADST has produced the largest U.S. diplomatic oral history collection, unveiling the horrifying, thought-provoking, and the absurd events that helped shape foreign policy. ADST.org, American diplomacy, warts and all. After over 70 years under a Soviet government, 1991 reigned in the beginning of a new Russia, with its first democratically elected president and a bold move towards a market-oriented economy. In a 2003 interview with Charles Stuart Kennedy, the U.S. ambassador to Russia at the time, Thomas Pickering, discusses some of these changes along with the U.S. involvement in a most important time. Listen ahead for some interesting anecdotes of the U.S. role in Russia's post-Soviet transition. Russia was, um, at that point, uh, becoming more dependent on imported goods, particularly luxury processed food goods for a small element of the population that could afford it. And as I said earlier, the rest of the population depended a lot on what they were able to raise themselves and in some ways on the very rickety sclerotic national distribution system that provided uh, stuff in the local markets, and so it was not easy. Um, initially, certainly before I got there, but after 91, there was a wave of imports, everything from Snickers bars, which were quite famous, uh, to wheat and grain, and of course, interestingly enough, increasingly chicken legs, which the Russians seemed to enjoy, and which helped the major producers of chicken in the United States figure out what to do with the legs, which were not wildly uh, saleable in the U.S., and so it was a complementary relationship that made for a lot of good, but the Russians saw this as an attack on their ability to produce themselves, and since um, I was there, I was there for Chicken War One, but we've been through several chicken wars in which the Russians, in a fit of national preoccupation about health and sanitation, use phytosanitary requirements to deny imports in a particular area, often for protectionist purposes, and then for a long period of time want to have their vets travel and visit, well, of course, every meat processing facility in the United States to approve it, to make sure, in fact, that it meets their high standards, the high standards of which are applied at the border, but not internally. And so this raises difficult problems, not that anybody should export to Russia or anyplace else um, material or meat that doesn't meet uh, sanitary conditions. But it was clearly uh, an effort um, uh, thinly disguised at protectionism as opposed to something else. Well, there was a basis in part for protectionism because they got an awful lot of pressure from their, from their uh, farmers for that particular protection because we could sell what came to be called in Russia bush legs uh, a lot cheaper than they could produce them in large measure because of the highly developed nature of U.S. agricultural production, particularly in these areas, um, and it tended to drive their um, very difficult um, process of trying to expand their agricultural production crazy to see these imports eating away at what base they had, and they were not very efficient at it. So there were, as I said, real strong feelings on both sides. It is a big deal and it involved initially five, six hundred billion dollars worth of U.S. exports on the one hand and, and uh, uh, a lot of Russian concern about 
how to nurture and develop their own chicken raising industry on the others. Another, quite the opposite, was interesting in a sense that McDonald's had opened up and were gradually expanding. And I was there, I think, for the opening of their third food store. Again, I have a recollection somewhere, I may have already said this, but uh, Yeltsin himself came. It was on the new Arbot, which had been turned pretty much principally into a walking street for shopping, and not far from the embassy residence. And um, it was interesting because on the opening day only, they served beer normally. Uh, McDonald's wouldn't in Russia and doesn't in Russia, as far as I know, serve beer. Mr. Mr. Yeltsin came, his fondness for alcohol being well known, but that was not the purpose of his visit. It was kind of to give a boost to McDonald's as it went along. McDonald's in the first two openings had become sort of a uh, place of distinction. As someone put it to me, a way the Russians could take a trip to the West without having to pay the airfare yeah. or get the visa. Yeah. Uh, and um, the, the third one uh, was in that sense equally remarkable in terms of public attention to it and the degree of focus on it and all the rest. One of the interesting things was the story that when um, Yeltsin asked the lady supervisor of that particular McDonald's how much she made. She apparently made more rubles than he did, <laughs> although his perks were obviously considerably larger. But the other interesting thing was that McDonald's was pretty ruthless, both in its training but in its vetting of its Russian employees. And there was lots of unemployment then in Russia, so they could assure a fairly high quality of service, but it was not something that naturally uh, came in the mm -hmm. Russian psyche mm -hmm. to provide the kind of service mm -hmm. that McDonald's was used to providing its customers. But was, this was one of the things that represented an unusual change in the early days of post-communism. It happened around the kind of the, the food world. It was also true that in terms of this competition for marketing, within a few years it drove Yuri Lushkov, the mayor of, uh, of Moscow, and an interesting and very fascinating figure on his own to begin to establish his own Russian fast food chain, uh, which grew up. Most of it uh, began after I had left, but it obviously had some competitive capacity uh, and served uh, what were particularly Russian fast foods, a lot of kasha, cereal, uh, uh, and things of that sort, uh, for Western tastes, not, uh, not so palatable, but it did market to the large Russian audience who wanted to, uh, to do this, and it represented a less heavy dent in their income than McDonald's did, although McDonald's prices were certainly comparable to what was charged in the U.S. and elsewhere around the world. Uh, it was for the Russians a real luxury evening out uh, with a comparable expenditure in terms of its dent. What role did you as the American ambassador play in this sort of thing? Well, I played the role of uh, encouraging the Russians uh, to look for compromise solutions, and we had some. I had several opportunities to see, I guess it was Dan Glickman, who was then Secretary of Agriculture, who was leading the effort. Uh, it was uh, heavily in engaged between the trade and agriculture ministries on both sides uh, to try to reach a solution to this particular problem, and that the embassy from time to time was asked to carry out instructions and talk to various folks, although the contact was 
quite intense Washington mm -hmm. to Moscow on this. Uh, mm -hmm. We kind of kept them informed as to what was going on and gave them our sense of where we thought the issue uh, might move to be settled. Well, what was your view, the embassy's view, of <coughs> the oligarchs and, uh, and this, you know, this sudden explosion <coughs> of, of uh, uh, Russian-style entrepreneurs I mean, were they, was this just the phase they had to go through, or could something be done about it? <laughs> well, it was interesting. Nobody that I dealt with thought that there was inevitable that the Russians had to go through this period. But as you know, they're still in it. Yeah. Uh, and to some extent, uh, it comes from, first, the notion that when communism collapsed, there were no rules for the operation of an open market. Now, Adam Smithians would tell you by definition yeah. there should be no rules. But we all know, in mm -hmm. fact, that successful operation of capitalist economies mm -hmm. depend very heavily on government rulemaking mm -hmm. and regulation. They don't depend uh, so much on what the Soviets saw, which was the government's producing goods and mm -hmm. services. So as the uh, Russian economy shifted from government production of goods and services, uh, it was suddenly one day there was a complete prohibition against private enterprise, and suddenly the next day there was full permission for private enterprise with no set of balancing rules and regulations, either with respect to meeting health requirements or to dealing with their labor or, you know, how to operate in the market or whether trusts were or were not possible and whether prohibited market practices, strong-arm enforcement or anything. And so, in effect, you went from, from uh, total prohibition uh, to Wild West overnight. And uh, the Russians are not dumb. And the most successful of them are smart as hell and learned how to take advantage of all of this, including they learned all the tricks and invented new ones <clears throat> in order to amass large amounts of personal wealth and to build their fortune. When I was there, I think the year, months before I left, Coca-Cola flew in 22 bottling plants in very large airplanes and set them up in factories that had been built in various places in Russia. Uh, to start the Coca-Colaization of Russia. Um, Mars, the famous American candy company, began by uh, getting special arrangements and customs duties to import large quantities of its candy bars. But in keeping with a commitment it made, it did build a fully uh, self-sustaining separate plant uh, in a region outside of Moscow to produce its own material and fought the battle of getting raw materials and other things in. It was a very modern, very effective plant. Uh, to make things go. When McDonald's came in, they decided that they had to do, uh, to maintain quality, almost all of the processing of everything they had in a central location rather than parceling it out to contractors and insisting they meet McDonald's standards. I think later vindicated because when I was there, they may have had seven or eight restaurants in Moscow by the time I left in 96. Now they have some 70 all over Russia mm -hmm. and obviously the centralized arrangement was there, but they had to do centrally what they would otherwise have depended on contractors in many other countries to be able to do, because that capability didn't exist in Russia. So part of the past history of the 10 years or so of Mr. Putin has been whether he will be controlled by or actually control uh, the oligarchic element in Russia, and he's used all of state power and all of his positions to assert his control over it rather than the other way around. In the meantime, the Russians have begun to pass laws and things regulating business, but it's not, in my view, necessarily too far still 
from the Wild West. There are more obligations of responsibility. And in the end, in Russia, having no rules to run the economy meant that the government could do what it wanted. It was not bound by a rule of law in the way it, it could use all the elements of state power and all of the traditional activities, say, of the intelligence and security agencies uh, to put pressure on oligarchs. It meant the development in Russia of what has come to be called compromat, uh, material which puts the individual in an embarrassing, invidious, and totally blackmailable position, which is sort of what all Russian leaders try to get on everybody they can <laughs> and everybody else, because it's another way of dealing with issues. But they could also use the, the, the prostitution and perversion of the, uh, of the prosecutorial system, which was, after all, still in the early aftermath of communism, very much a communist arrangement. It meant that, in fact, the chief individual in the judicial system was the prosecutor, and the judges and all the attorneys and everybody else followed his lead. And that's the way in which uh, uh, communist law uh, operated, and that's the way in which individuals were subject to the so-called rule of law, or the law of rule, maybe, in Russia. Uh, and a lot of that hung over into the, into the days of Yeltsin and Putin. Yel Putin Yeltsin, for his part, tried to break some of that down and saw, in fact, that judicial reform could play a role, and a lot of Westerners were pushing hard to make that happen. <clears throat> you had some enlightened judges, but you had many judges, obviously, who preferred the old system. It was better for them. They did better under the old system. They made more money. They prospered. They had fewer problems and all the rest. But all of these things, I think, played a role in this transition period. Uh, and it was clear that Mr. Putin has seen, long since I was there, that a lot of this, from his perspective, has gone so too far, and so he's engaged and has been in recentralizing. Well, um, with the oligarchs, they were running wild when you were there, was that, or had they started? No, no, I mean, I was there at the beginning of the, uh, at the period when, in effect, <clears throat> there were a few limits on oligarchic power, and they exercised a great deal of influence uh, over President Yeltsin and his bureaucracy. Well, I mean, one of the things that uh, happened when I was there was that as a way, clearly, of financing Yeltsin's success in the 1996 election, um, the um, government under Anatoly Chubais, who was one of their premier reformers, mm -hmm. went into a, quote, one-time arrangement with the oligarchs uh, in which um, uh, the oligarchs got shares in previously government-owned enterprises for giving large loans for the government. Mm -hmm. It was called loans for shares. And, of course, you can imagine where the loan money ended up in the electoral campaign, I suppose. <laughs> Certainly they were unwise to have spent it anywhere else if they <laughs> wanted to move Yeltsin from single-digit popularity in January to success in the election in June. Yeah. Well, now, one of the attributes of a, a successful diplomat in, in a country <laughs> is to know where the power is. And so you, as the American ambassador, what did you do about the powerful oligarchs? Well, I, I had an opportunity to get to see them, uh, certainly not to influence them. Uh, they were very standoffish, and a lot of them kept themselves at some distance, uh, although some, uh, long after I retired, came to see me when they got in trouble. <clears throat> but 
it was interesting that while I was there, some had become incorporated. Mr. Potanin had become deputy uh, uh, prime minister, and as part of my role in, in knowing the Russian government and knowing the players, I of course tried to go around and see these people, talk to them, get a sense of what their views were, and you know where they were headed. Well, a lot of them weren't particularly enlightening. Some of them weren't particularly enlightened. Mm -hmm. about where they were going and where they were headed, and it was one of the principal issues we had to deal with. Well, was much of their <coughs> money, uh, as say in Hong Kong, uh, uh, where some of the big money earners there made sure they had a, equivalent to a green card or were investing in property in the United States? Was this Well, I on? think that, of course, <coughs> Russia, when I first got there, was heavily afflicted by inflation, and mm -hmm. so a good bit of people's savings and, and otherwise went into foreign currency and went into dollars. And so it was a very heavy dollarization of Russia, maybe 30 to $40 billion worth of U.S. currency in circulation in Russia. And uh, things were sold and traded for in dollars. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until a ruble reform, I guess at the beginning of 1994, <clears throat> when the Russians clamped down on this and made it harder for people to trade in dollars, they uh, revalued the ruble and uh, dropped, uh, you know, three zeros off it, so it became a currency that one could deal with in smaller numbers, and uh, insisted that trading take place in rubles, that the dollarization fell away, and you didn't have to carry a lot of dollars uh, to make things happen, but their credit cards were not honored, the checks were not worth anything, uh, and so cash dollars were what prevailed, and of course these folks amassed it, they move money out of Russia very easily. Their <clears throat> positions allowed them to do that, and they developed huge offshore bank accounts and um, reinvested their money um, into more stable <laughs> activities all across the Western world. And, and so it was true that um, Russian oligarchs uh, controlled a very large amount of money outside of Russia. And those who didn't get their money out of Russia when the time came to do them in, the Russian state took their money, as they did with Mr. Khodorkovsky, or most of his. I don't you know how much he was successful in getting out, but he took the view that he should reinvest in Russia, develop the oil business that he had put together, and make that prosper. And so, in a sense, he was the victim of his own good intentions, as well as perhaps his own sloppiness about where he drew the line between business and politics. This podcast has been brought to you by ADST. For more, check out our website at adst.org. ADST, American Diplomacy, Warts and All.